This message is brought to you by Heartland Family Fellowships. Hi, my name is Steve Finney, and I will be your speaker today. We thank you for listening in on our podcast and hope that the Lord does bless you as you listen today. The title of this message is The Power of Co-Crucifixion. Galatians 2.20 Someone read that off the screen. What do we have there? I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up to me. So here we have a very, very, very powerful truth where, where he's saying, I have been crucified with Christ, but it is not I who lives, but Christ who lives within me. And the life that I now live, I live by the faith and the power of the Son of God, who is actually going to live and breathe through me. And this is a truth that the enemy works diligently on on trying to get us to forget, because it's where the power of daily living comes from. Let's take a look at some of the, um, the little details of setting up for the power of the crucifixion. In, Jesus' name in Hebrew is, is, is tall-tailing all by itself. Now, you've got to remember that Yahshua was something that God gave, a name that God gave his own son long before he created this earth. It has been with him forever in the past and it will be with him forever in the future and here's what it means so if if there are people out there that don't believe that the old testament is a perfect setup for the new testament and the old testament actually is filled with the gospel they don't understand that then they really don't understand the purpose of of christ coming to the earth and that is why the jewish people do not understand Jesus, when he was here, and even to this very day, is because they do not believe that the, the Torah has anything to do with this modern Christianity. So I want to show you something that is extremely significant. His name is Yud Shin Vav Ayin, which is the hand, the teeth, the nail, and the eye, which means the hand that consumed the nail for all to see. There have been movies and music scripts and books written and on and on and on about the power of Christ receiving, consuming what has to do with the nail. That nail is so symbolic for so many things in the scriptures. Sin, fulfilling prophecy. In fact, everything in the Old Testament is represented in that nail. The very Torah that the, the Hebrew people, Jewish people live by is in that nail. It's in the nail. The nail is a Hebrew word picture of God. They didn't just reach down and grab a nail because the Romans thought this would be a cool way to crucify them. It was prophetically laid out before the foundations of the earth. The nail. So the hand... Laying there on that cross 
that consumed the nail. It's saying, I will consume every prophetic element of this, of this nail. Anything that my father has connected to that nail, I receive it. I willingly consume it. I take it in myself. There's a scripture that says that Jesus became what on the cross? Sin. He openly consumed all the sin inside that nail and it came inside of his mortal body. And he literally became sin. Then he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And while he's there on the cross being consumed, willingly pulling in everything from those nails and he becomes sin, his father's eyes have to turn away from him because Abba will never, ever look at sin. Ever. You say, oh, in the Old Testament, it's filled with God looking at sin. No, there isn't. There are angels representing God, but not God. Jesus himself became the screen, the filter between man and Abba so that Abba would never have to deal with sin. And when he consumed all that was in the nail, all that sin filled his mortal body and he became sin and God turned his face from him and Jesus being as close as he was to his Abba felt God's eyes turn away from him. Because God, from the Hebrew, cannot cast his eyes upon the shortfalls of man. Can't do it. There's a lot of power in his name. And that's just one of them. Here's the Torah. The Torah is a sign, a nail, a head, behold. So what it is, is it's laid out what comes from the man nailed to the cross. This is, this is the definition of Torah. This is the, the Old Testament writings that the, that the Jews, Orthodox or not, they cling to as their truth. And it literally translates out in the pictorial Hebrew as what comes from the man nailed to the cross. You see... This here gives you clear and adequate understanding as to why Satan moved on the people to rewrite the Hebrew four times by the time that Jesus showed up. Four times it was, it was rewritten. To now your average Hebrew reader has no clue of the pictorial. No clue at all. Some of them you can figure out and see. But I didn't have time to actually put the actual pictorials of the ancient Hebrew on here. But for Torah, the, the cross is literally a cross. In their original, it's a cross. But in the modern Hebrew, you couldn't get cross out of that symbol if you tried. Because Satan does not want the children of God to understand that the gospel of Jesus Christ was laid out from the foundation of the earth. And then he comes along and says, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives within me. So he adds this dimension of we actually were invited in 
to join him on being nailed to the cross? Well, we need, we need to take a look at that. The power of co-crucifixion, which is the Galatians 2.20, it's also Romans 6.6, 6, is actually the, the gateway or the foundation for us understanding this exchange of life. Our life for his life. Our life has to die in order for us to have his life. There's nowhere in scripture that it says that we're supposed to inherit, receive the two of these together. One has to die in order to have the new life. And here's how that happens. Hebrews 16, 13 through 15 says, And Jesus was asking his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And the way Jesus gets this whole thing going is he's, he's asking an identity question. Because identity is very significant and it matters when you are trying to help someone understand where they are, how they're functioning, why they're functioning, or what they believe is, is important. So Jesus is asking them, well, who do they, the people, say I am? And they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, well, but who do you say that I am? There's a significant thing you need to understand about Jesus' quotes in the Bible. His answers are always in his quotes. Same thing with Hebrew. Uh, on the next couple of weeks, I'm going to actually lay out to you the first Hebrew word in every one of the books of the Old Testament and it spells the message of the gospel in pictorial Hebrew. Every word that proceeded out of the mouth of Jesus Christ had the answer in it. Who do you say I am? Where's the answer? I am. You see, he knows, of course, who he is, and he wants to know what they're listening to, which is the they, the people. Well, that doesn't, that doesn't solve the issue for them. In fact, a couple of the disciples went wayward because they didn't understand what Jesus was saying and what he was asking, Peter being a clear example of that. So who do others say that you are? He first wanted to find out input. Then he's saying, who do you say you are? Well, I'm the son of John, or I'm the, you know, whatever. And then he leads them into discovering, who does God say you are? Who does my Abba say that you are? What people say, what you say, what Abba says. See, Jesus didn't claim his own identity himself. It's whose daddy said he was. So you tie all this patriarch stuff into this? If you don't accept patriarchism, you're never going to accept this. Never. Because Jesus was nothing more than what his daddy told him he was. Jesus didn't do anything except for what his daddy told him to do. So if there's a brokenness in fatherhood to sonhood, there is no way you're going to be able to live out what God said because he 
was the pure example of living out what the patriarch said as the prince. And now he's setting them up for the exact same thing. Basically saying, you're not going to get this, guys, unless you embrace the Father. But since that's such a horrid concept to you, because your leaders of the Old Testament mess things up so bad, and you're so hyper-paranoid about fathers, I have come to show you the perfect model of being a son. You see, Jesus didn't come to demonstrate his power to be a king. He came to demonstrate the power of being a son who listened and obeyed his father. Here's what he laid out for us. This is eternal life. So if someone will read out for me Hebrews 13.11, or quote it, if you know it. What does Hebrews 13.11 say about this line? 13.8 Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today, yes and forever. So these little symbols at the end of the line is representative of eternity. Goes on and on and on and on and on and on. So Jesus Christ is the same yesterday. There is no starting date for him. That's what I am is. There is no beginning. But he started a beginning when he came to earth. And that's what people, other religions primarily, have the tendency to do with Jesus. Say, well, he was a great prophet because prophets have a beginning. And he's, he's separating himself from that, saying, I have no beginning. I am the beginning. I am the Alpha. And Alpha is what again in Hebrew? It's the first letter. It's way back. It also the same thing in the Greek, the Alpha. It's the beginning. And Jesus is saying, I am way beyond the beginning as you humans tend to view beginning. I am. Then he says, I am the present and I am the future. So therefore I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. So eternal life is actually Christ's life. Romans 5.10 says, Reconcile to God by the death of His Son. So now you have this eternal life here, forever in the past, today, and forever in the future. We've determined that that is eternal life, which is actually the very life of Christ. So when people were touching the garment of, of Jesus, they were actually tapping in to the power that exists within this eternal life. It had nothing to do with him. It had everything to do with who he was. So when they touched that garment, even his clothing radiated the power of eternal life. So see, in eternal life, God can say, uh, the earth, now, boom, water, now, death, life. All you do is just speak it. 
Because he was power. And so that was and is Jesus' life. So when people reached out and grabbed his garment, they immediately felt that power. They tasted the power of that eternal life. And Jesus said, you, you, you want more? How about you come in to this eternal life with me and live resurrection power every day of your life? Jesus had resurrection power inside of him before he went to the cross and died and resurrected. The reason why he got resurrected from the tomb is because he had the power of resurrection already in him. He didn't need the cross. It was a pure act of selflessness. It was a pure act of love for him to go through that cross experience. Hebrews 9.22. Does anyone have that verse ready? And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. Okay, what, what's the definition again of Torah? Which means law, right? Hebrew law is Torah. What's the definition of law? Torah? What comes from the... Okay, now, reread that verse. When it comes to law, use that phrase. Might feel a little awkward, but it'll work. So even in the Old Testament, if you translate it out correctly, it is going to read exactly like the New Testament. If you properly translate out the Old Testament, when you read the New Testament, it is literally going to verify what was already said. But Satan, in his crafty ways, has drifted the, the children, the, the Hebrew children, from their original language so far, they didn't get it. So that's why a friend of mine who has mastered the art of pictorial Hebrew has dedicated his whole entire life to making sure the Jewish people understand pictorial Hebrew. Because they get it instantly. You don't. You've got to go study it. Where'd you get that book? Can I have a copy of that book? Can I have a copy of that page? You've got to study it. Whereas when they hear it, they go, Yes! Because they have been taught the structure of the lettering versus the life of the letter. The letter of the Torah versus the life of the Torah which comes through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Blood is required for identity. Remember what we talked about? There's identity in blood. They've literally proven that today through DNA. There's sin and seed in the seed. There's identity in the blood. And that's why Jesus could be born of a woman that had sin inside of her body and not have sin inside of his body. Because sin doesn't travel through the blood. It's a cleansing agent. All of the story of, of what we 
saw and heard and much, much more centers around the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus Christ. Because his blood was pure. His identity was pure. His lineage was pure. And he had no sin inside of him because he had the seed of who? Joseph? Whose seed did he have? Gabriel's? That's what the Muslims believe. God. God took his seed and gave it. And it was miraculously placed inside Mary and she got pregnant from God's seed. And Mary's blood had a pure heritage. Now, so by the obedience of one shall many make righteous. And here's how this is done. You see, when I was born... I was born in sin because of my daddy's seed and because of my daddy's daddy's seed, my grandfather, and because of my great-grandfather and my great-great-grandfather and all the way back to Adam because of this deceptive, twisted piece of truth that Satan used on Eve and said, all you have to do, honey, is just bite into that sin. That's all you have to do. Just bite into it. You're not going to die. You know what? She didn't. Did she? There's nothing in that story about her not just falling over right there in front of the tree. And Adam having to get a new wife. God, oh boy, he gave me a great one here. No. She didn't die. You see, because Satan understood that people are like sheep. They only believe half of the truth at a time. As a counselor of, of 30 plus years, that's something I have come to grips with, is that people don't get truth when you talk to them. That is ridiculous. They only get half of it. Or a fourth of it. So when you tell them the full truth, they don't get it. They have to go pray about it and research it and read it and wrestle with it and ask 14 people. And then if it's confirmed in the Word after those 14 people, then I'll believe it. That's the craftiness that Satan was relying upon. Because people don't receive full-on truth. So he was counting on Eve just listening to the first part of, you're not going to die. And she ate that fruit and she did not die. Wow. See, but Satan, Satan knew he had not won yet. Because all he did was affected his identity. Eve is Adam's identity. She is his blood. If you read the Hebrew from its original text, it says Adam was created and Eve was formed. Big difference. Satan knew that. 
He had to get at the seed before he could get at Steve. Just getting at Eve did, did really half of it. He had to get to the seed. And the reason why he didn't go to Adam directly is because of the way God designed men to be. If a family functioned under the model of the gals and children stand under their head of home, you would not see the sin that you see in the world today. You would not see the sin you see in the world today. Guarantee you. Because Satan cannot go directly at the man alone. He's got to come through the identity to get at his seed. And when he does that double duo thing, he's guaranteed to make that family fall. And that's what he did. So she invited Adam over because Satan had no prerogative to go at the leader. I don't believe he does to this day. I think he gets at leaders, causes them to fall all day long every day by the thousands because things are out of line. Now, if he comes away from God and submits himself to Satan indirectly, can Satan get him? Of course he can get him. But there's something about the design of Adam and Eve that Satan could not go directly at Adam. He had to go through Eve. He had to go through the identity. He had to go through the blood. He had to attack the blood to get at the seed. But he also deceived Adam. So we can't ignore one without the other. And we can't say, well, we, men can't be tempted. And men, that's, that's not true. They have to be seen together. The whole plan that Satan had was to get at Adam. I have a question for you. If Adam would have caught on to the whole truth, not half of it, and he would have approached this situation, whether he was five minutes away or 500 miles away, but when he approached the situation and she said, oh, honey, eat from this apple. It's really good. You won't die. I tried it. I'm still alive. Look at me. Probably even look better, huh? Well, when that apple's in front of him, if he backed up a little bit and went... No. God said, don't eat from this tree, because if we do, we'll surely die. I did. Look at me. Well, uh... No, 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 not going to do it. Something's not right here. If he would have embraced the other half of the truth, he would have walked away and left his wife in sin. What would have happened? Someone just kind of walk that through for me. If it would have went that way. Does Eve die? Yeah, she dies like normal. God would have disciplined Eve and she would have died and God would have either replaced her or had his seed replenish the earth anyway and Eve still would have died. Exactly. She would have been a blip on the radar map, to be perfectly blunt. But see, that's not how it went. 
And there is a reason why. Adam is standing there and he is caught. Satan isn't even in the picture from what we can see in Scripture. He is, he's dealing with his wife in this apple in her hand or kiwi or whatever it is. And he's, he's listening to her, which he had no reason not to listen to her. But it became an issue of obedience. So Adam's decision was not, oh, you, you're in trouble. It was obedience. Which voice will I listen to? The most critical moment for men, when their wives feel caught and upset and tortured and miserable and whatever, and they're wanting to, misery loves what? Company. That was invented in the garden. And so Adam's like, well, I'm not going to read the scriptures over you. Well, no. He got sucked right in by not speaking the other half of the truth over her, even though he would have lost her. He takes the apple. He eats. Now the sin gets inside of his mortal body and he became sin on behalf of man. Now to the cross. Jesus saying, I became sin. He's saying, you don't have to do this anymore, mankind. I will become sin on your behalf. The gospel's all over the Garden of Eden, folks. And there's no use blaming Eve. Because Eve is symbolic for the bride of Christ. And Adam is symbolic of a fallen leader who ultimately will be a symbol of the Antichrist. Except for Adam got redeemed. And there's no redemption for Satan. Zero. None. Right here is where he's going. So now that the seed is corrupt... And he gives birth to a couple boys. Remember that story? Cain and Abel. Of course, everything went great now. Her children don't fight. First generation. There's no cultural education from schools, and bad books, and media. Right? They were born murderers. They were born corrupt. And the only way to stop the corruption from eating them in their life day to day was through what God classified as a blood sacrifice. So he lays the gospel of Jesus Christ out clear back in the garden around these characters. Of course, as we know, one murdered the other. And God chases the one off the land and establishes the first metropolitan city of mankind. And when you put <coughs> sin in a seed, and seed very quickly being given to each other, sin filled the earth almost overnight. And it got so bad that God had to come and wash it away through a flood. And taken one man, who is now the symbol of Abba, and, uh, and the sons and their wives 
and then future children. He puts them on a boat. He floods out, washes out the earth, says, I have made a mistake, is how it's translated out to some, which I don't believe that's the original translation, but that's the way it reads. So he washes away mankind, and then he reestablishes. And what happens before he could even get over his hangover? Another bad seed. Ham goes in and sees his father naked, and you know how the story goes from there. So it's because of sin that's inside the seed, all the way down to Steve now. So I have a decision to respond to the touch of Jesus or not. That's my only choice. Is Abba who decides who is going to be transferred over to the eternal life, the life of Jesus Christ. But those who do not receive, who are not in Christ Jesus, they do not get the opportunity and privilege to be received into eternal life, and we know what their destination is. Meanwhile, the eternal life of Jesus Christ never ever changes. The cross had been put in place before the foundations of the earth. It is going to happen. And there's nothing Jesus or anyone else can do about it. It is supposed to happen. Co-crucifixion is supposed to happen. There's nothing we can do about it. It is supposed to happen. Those who fight the cross are not saved. They are not. The only way to be saved is to be crucified. Now you may not have knowledge of that and go, wow, I didn't know that. And it's added to your salvation. But those who do not believe in co-crucifixion, I do not believe are saved. And there are many theologically that do not support Romans 6.6, that do not support Galatians 2.20. They don't. That's why there shall be many who say, but. And Christ is going to say, be gone from me, you, you vile and wicked generation, for I know you not. This next step is critical, folks. Here I am, 16 years of age, and I'm at this, this fork in the road, and and the Holy Spirit created all kinds of questions and curiosity, and I couldn't even read yet. So I, this was all going on with the Holy Spirit. It wasn't something I was getting from media or from books or from tracts or brochures. It was the Holy Spirit setting the pathway so that I come to this point where I, I have a decision to respond to His touch. Do you understand that when the groom touches you, there is power of eternal life that, that, that touches you for a moment. And there's some churches that are addicted to that feeling. That's not what I'm talking about. And when Christ, through the Holy Spirit, touched my shoulder, as some of you know my story is, I came home to my mother after working. I first asked my aunt. She had no clue what to tell me. Then I came home and asked my mother, and she said, oh, I don't know. Go down and talk to the pastor. So I jumped in my hot rod. 1965 Chevy Supersport, 420 weight, 4-speed. It was a hot car. 
And I zoomed on down to the local pastor, you know, Saturday, knocked on his door, and I says, can you tell me about this, this Jesus Christ? Because I'm just obsessed. The night before, I, had, I didn't get any sleep because the name of Jesus was going over and over and over in my mind. He couldn't have led me to some Bible passages. I didn't know how to read. It was the Holy Spirit just saying the word Jesus. Joshua. Jesus. And I'm like, ah! ah, ah going, something's wrong with me. Who is this Jesus? I didn't even know who he was. The pastor goes, wait, wait, right there. He was just like, urgent. So I'm not going anywhere. He runs and gets his sweater and his Bible. He says, let's walk over to the church. We walk into this empty church. We go down front. And he explains to me the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm crying and I'm weeping. And I'm going, oh, I want it. I want it. I did not choose Christ. I was overwhelmed by his eternal life and I couldn't resist it. That is true salvation. And I was waiting for the pastor to say, let's pray. And he finally did. And I prayed and I wept. Now I'm going to tell you a very personal story. And I haven't been able to talk about it because my mother's been still alive. So it's a private story. And I never want her to be embarrassed by it. But it's very powerful. When that pastor was talking to me about Jesus Christ shedding his innocent blood and he gave his life for my life, And he said, we are going to pray right now that the power of God through the Holy Spirit enters into your mortal body. And I'm just like, silenced. And so we start praying and he prays about the power of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And I saw this picture in my mind as he's praying of standing behind a lady was probably about that high in my mind, and I saw blood dripping on her shoes. So it was like I was standing here, and I'm seeing blood drip on her shoes. And that's the picture in my mind, as the pastor is saying, Jesus Christ died on the cross and shed his innocent blood for your sins. I was just blown away. I mean, that picture was like it, it was happening in my mind. Many, many, many years go by. I'm at my parents' 45th wedding anniversary. And I am telling my mother about that story. We were just going down memory lane. And she had this pale look on her face. And then after I was done, she said, Honey, that wasn't a dream. That wasn't a vision. That really happened. I said, What? And she said, Your, your father was coming to beat you. And I put you in the corner, 
And I stood between you and your father, and I took those beatings, and there was blood dripping on my shoes. That moment, my mother had to suffer hardship and suffering so that her baby one day would understand the sacrificial power of shedding innocent blood for a wanting son. I can't even tell you how much passion I have for this message. When my mentor showed me this almost 30 years ago, I knew that I knew this was the truth. All of it. Jesus not only died, I went to Chuck years later and I said, I was so passionate about receiving Jesus Christ that day. What happened to me? He said, Stephen, you went into the church understanding the power of Jesus dying on the cross for you. And I said, yes! He said, Steve, you walked out of the church not understanding you died with him. You only received half of the truth, a typical deception from Satan. And I tell you what, he believes, and I am with him on this, that well over 90% of the true, authentic Christians in the world today only believe that Jesus died on the cross for them. They have no clue what the power of co-crucifixion means. I do. I don't live it every day, but I understand it. Now, here's what happens. It tells us in 1 Corinthians that we're translated over into the eternal life. And that actually happens through this co-crucifixion. Now, I don't have memories of being there. You probably don't either. I've always wanted to paint a picture of Christ being on one side, me being on the other, but I really thought people would think that's too bizarre. But it's the truth. I know Jesus is looking out. That's why I put that picture together with the, with the words that says, Are you here with me? Because if you're not, you're not going to be with me for eternity. Co-crucifixion does have both of us on that cross. And I don't understand how that past, present, and future stuff all comes together at the moment I said with that pastor, I receive Jesus Christ into my mortal body. And that's why I pray that with people I lead to Christ today. I don't say, I pray to receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. No, I pray to receive Jesus Christ into my mortal body. And as my Lord and Savior. He comes in you. That's where the new life is. So I'm going to read for us Romans 6, verses 3 through 6. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, 
that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Okay. We were in Adam, on our way to you know where, and we couldn't go past go to collect our 200 bucks. Then he transferred us over into the kingdom of light, which is the same word in Hebrew for Holy Spirit. So we were transferred into the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit into us. And then something else very uniquely happened to us is we were buried with him. Jesus was not in that tomb alone. Every bridal member from that moment, actually the ones that were alive in his generation, they were about to receive the Holy Spirit because they couldn't have the Holy Spirit until he was resurrected. But every bridal member all the way through the appointed process that God the Father said, these people will be your bridal members, had to share in the baptism of his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And if Satan panics, and he did and he does panic, that if people caught on to this truth, they would be set free and no longer act as slaves to sin. So he, he does his normal old thing that he did all the way back in the garden, and that is a lie is nothing more, nothing less than only telling half the truth. Because it catches you, it hooks you, you know it's right. He just doesn't tell you the other half of the story. So the way you free yourself from sin is by listening to the rest of the story. But if you have an authority problem, you're not going to. You're going to try to figure it out yourself. I.e., stay in bondage. That's about as simple as I can make it. Died with him. Buried with him. Colossians 3.3 says, And we have been raised up with him. Someone tell me right now where you are. Seated at the right hand of God. That's right out of Colossians 3. If you haven't read the chapter, might not be a bad way to follow up this message. Crucified, buried, raised, and then seated at the right hand of God. There are three ways that you can view your earthly problems. You can be a whiner and complainer and be on the cross. And I'm not going to be embarrassed to say you can act like a Catholic. Because they keep Christ on the cross for a reason. So the priest can be the intercessor. It's not healthy theology, whoever it is that's listening. You can be on the cross and looking down at all of your, your family and friends. <sighs> so a little bit of pain and suffering. I know you're at my feet. I love it. But I'm never going to get over this. Out of the pain. Yeah. Well, you know, there's a time for that. But that time passed. 
Or you can look at life through the tomb. And that is <sighs> dark in here, lonely. I know there's probably over a billion people in here with me, but I don't care. It's lonely. It's dark. It's called depression. That's what the world calls it, depression. No windows to your soul. Or you can view life by, by being seated at the right hand of God and look down upon your problems and say, yes, I am suffering right now. Yes, this does hurt right now, but this is not where I'm at. I have been raised with Christ Jesus and seated at the right hand of the Most High. You live like that. And Satan trying to drag you back through the tomb, through the cross, back to your Adamic life, for you to act like you are enslaved to sin, it won't work. It's impossible. It just won't work. This is true victorious living. It's functioning not after you get raptured in placed at the right hand of, most guy, uh, of the Most High. You are right now placed at the right hand of the Most High. For the one to be set free, he must know his loving Master. To embrace the life of he, he must refrain from going faster. To blend in with the power of the cross... One must repent for life forever after. <coughs> to know and live the life of the cross, you must know our husband's master. That's what God gave me a week before my heart failure. And when I saw in that video clip that Jesus actually died of heart failure, he didn't die of all these reasons that people say. Maybe those are half-truths. He died of heart failure. His sweating, the blood, all that is physiologically possible. You see, even the heart failure that God took me through, He wanted me to learn that going faster. This was one week sitting at my desk, God saying, I have a little poem for you. Because my, my dad, Charles Solomon, is, I mean, he writes books with poems in them. And I thought it would be cool if the Lord would give me a poem for this conference I was about to do. So he gives me this poem. And then a week later, I go into heart failure and die several times. Going a little too fast, huh, Stephen? Well, I'm going to slow you down. I'm going to show you the power of the cross again. To know this, to keep Christ on the cross is a sin. To keep Christ in the tomb is personal death. To consider Christ as an eternal force is defeat. External, sorry. To view Christ through our circumstances is playing God. To hold to a fleshly identity is to reflect the image of the evil one. But, to claim our 
birthright as a child of God is to behold the glory of God through our personal identity in His Son. Thus we become the bride of His Son. The Son sits at the right hand of the Most High. When we get to heaven, we're not going to be in the audience with the angels. Do you understand that? I don't know, when you're praying and you think of heaven and you see these beautiful pictures in your head, and if you see yourself out in the audience like a church service, boy, are you wrong. You are seated at the right hand of God, observing the full glory of God. Why? Because of what we just went through today. The power of co-crucifixion. Many people need a prayer. They don't know how to put all this together in a, a practical way. They're not sure exactly what to repent. Or what to repent of. So I'm just going to read the prayer. And you have a copy of the prayer and slide. If it's too small, remember all these slides are put online. And you can print them in regular size full sheets if you want to. But here's what the prayer says. Dear Father, I recognize that I cannot live the Christian life in and of my strength, my own strength, or out of my own resources. That I have been a selfer and total failure in and of myself. Because of my inability to live the Christian life, I now give up on my self-sufficiency, and do hereby commit my life unconditionally into your hands. And I choose to allow Christ to live his life through me. I give up my rights and my expectations and give you permission to make me into the kind of person you want me to be as I make absolute surrender to you. Now, I don't need to tell you guys what you're praying. I mean... God does not grant you a life without suffering once you give up everything. He increases it. And the reason why you see this in the scriptures as an increase, and Jesus even warned his disciples, and then Paul and Timothy and others kept warning the disciples, you're going to suffer as Christ suffered. And I'm going to use the exact words that Jesus said. He said, you will suffer as I have suffered and then some. You see, he was warning us that it's, it's not going to get better circumstantially, but I will use these hardships to bring you into keeping the power of co-crucifixion alive and well in your life. So don't pray it. Unless you're serious. About living the power of co-crucifixion. And even if you don't pray it, He will lead you to someday. I believe your word that I am, that I, my old man, have been crucified with Christ. I believe I was buried with Christ. I have been raised with Him to the newness of life and am now seated in heavenly places at the right hand of, fa of the Father in Christ Jesus. Father, I choose as an act of my will to claim Christ as my life, my power, my identity.
I thank you that my identification with Christ makes me totally acceptable and that my need is met through Christ Jesus. I yield myself totally to the indwelling Christ as an act as an act of my obedience. Excuse me. Do with me whatever you choose. I'm asking you to make your truth a reality yeah, a reality in my experience. Glorify and manifest your Son in my life. I am trusting in you to do what I cannot do. Quit what I can't quit. And most of all, to be what I can't be. I thank you for renewing my mind and healing damaged emotions as you transform my life and live your life through me. I thank you for saving me from sin and from my wicked self and for the victory which is now mine through him. In Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us today. Heartland Family Fellowship is a local church plant here in Sterling, Kansas. Our fellowship includes the family and all levels of worship. Our mission is to bring families back together spiritually, relationally, and physically. Many people ask us, what does that really mean, or how does it benefit them? Well, it means that you can bring your entire family to any of Heartland's events. And we will work to keep the focus on God Jesus Christ, and the body of Christ without dividing up the family at the front door. If you're interested in learning more about our fellowship or other family-integrated fellowships, please log on to our website. That is www.heartlandfellowships.org. We thank you for joining us. Get yourself in a bind, lose a shirt off your back. Need a floor, need a couch, need a bus fare.